Peter, I have a confession to make. Are you ready? Oh, good. Yeah, no, of course. Always. Okay. It's the fourth season, so this really shouldn't be an issue, but my confession is I still get a little nervous every time before we start recording. Oh, do you? I wake up and I'm just a little bit nervous. I think it's mostly like performance anxiety, so that's not a bad thing, but it's just a little bit jittery. Do you feel that way at all? Yeah, I do, especially like today. I'm coming in so hot. So hot to record this thing. How am I possibly going to be a contributor when I am coming in like sweat prepping? (laughs) I was about to say, you said in your text to me, I'm busy sweat prepping and I never heard something (laughs) so apt in my life. Yeah. Like I finished my uh, preparation yesterday and I still feel like I have no idea what I'm doing. Well, (laughs) this is good news because guess what? I've been on the phone with a team of French and Japanese scientists. That's not true, but I read an article about it and they have uncovered exciting new information related to performance anxiety. Namely, they've identified the part of the brain that gives you the performance jitters and they may have a way to stop it. Would you like to hear about it real quick? Absolutely. All right. Okay, so these scientists gave a bunch of people, subjects, uh, a bunch of buttons to press in different order to complete under stress while lying in an MRI. Now, how do you think they added the stress element, which would be the same as, you know, about to go on stage? Needle spiders? Not needle spiders, but electric (laughs) shocks. We're still doing electric shocks. What? It's not just for Milgram, kids. Yeah, electric (gasps) shocks were given when the subjects made a mistake. This year starts with a two, and we're still doing electric shocks. Anyway. Oh, my God. The scanner showed that the anxiety-related mistakes that were made were marked by activity in the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, or the DA-double-C, a brain region (laughs) whose functions include reward processing and decision-making during motor tasks. And then they went on, in effect, to switch off the double A, nope, the D-A-C-C, by using, (laughs) here here you go, acronym fans, an RTMS, which is Repetitive Transcranial Magnetic Stimulation, an established technique to temporarily reduce activation of a targeted brain area. Again, it's just magnets, which we've talked about before, putting magnets on part of your brain in order to settle it down. And when they zapped the DACC prior to the performed activity, the subjects made dramatically less mistakes and therefore received less shocks. <laughs> so we now, if this study is correct, and it's very, very new, the DACC can be the triggering force behind performance anxiety and the use of RTMS could find its way onto sports fields before concerts and before podcasts. If it becomes uh, uh, normal enough, what do you think about that? Magnets. I think, well, I think it's terrifying. Also, <laughs> probably great uh, if you are like, I don't want to diminish if it's helping people, but right. I have to report I've done some real time research and I'm relieved to say that when you search for magnets, you cannot find them on Goop. And so I know at least where they didn't get their research. Welcome to What's That Smell, a sometimes funny podcast about humans and their anxieties. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Tommy Metz Third. And every week we each drag one of our deepest, darkest anxieties into the light to share it, learn about it, and hopefully laugh about it with all of you. Reach out! Send us the story of your anxieties to something stinky at whatsthatsmell.net. 
And with that, Thomas, I shall go first. Tommy. Um, Hello. Hi. How are you? Good. Good. It's a pleasure to podcast with you today. Always. This is a connection that you and I have that is uh, of great and deep value to me. Mm. Oh. I just want you to know that. It's That's important great. to me. It is. Is it? Are you weirded out? Like it sounds like you're no. backed away from the microphone. No, I love that. I just like the idea that one of the things that makes me happiest, as you heard from the cold open, also makes me nervous. That's just a weird, <laughs> just a weird part of my life where I'm like, I'm so excited to be uncomfortable a little bit. <laughs> well, I okay. So I have uh, I have a, a preamble mm. before I get to my anxiety this week. The preamble is, you know, I do this other show. You've been a guest on it's the ADHD podcast, yes. Take Control ADHD. Uh, and so we've we've talked about anxieties over on that show, and it's been really great. And I was prepping for a show. We had a guest on that show, Dr. William Dodson, whose specialty is rejection-sensitive dysphoria. Uh, uh, rejection-sensitive dysphoria. Do you know what that is? Reje- I, I mean, I know you even do a lot of reading. Wise. Yeah, no, I don't. <laughs> Go ahead. Rejection. Uh, it, yeah. It's something when you when you suffer from rejection sense of just you could have just said like when people neg me I get sad, uh, oh. and and that's really what that is. But when you when you're living with ADHD, as this, his research shows that you know people with ADHD have a much higher degree of sensitivity to rejection oh. than uh, than normative sure. uh, folks. That's what that's what the idea is. And is, is. it harder and so, to get rid of? Yeah, yeah, okay. absolutely. It can cause depressive spirals that are, and the reason is dysphoric. It's not connected to depression. Depression. It is a non-depressive uh, depression, right? And so it is often misdiagnosed. It's often I'm oh, like it's just it's just laughing. a crazy thing. Well, I, I say all this because right. it's like new words to me. Like yeah. that was a new concept to me, and I had never connected it with something that I had personally experienced uh, before. Right? Like that put words to my life experience in a way that that uh, I I haven't hmm. I haven't been able to express. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, definitely. I learned something. Just talking about it, I learned something about how I live and and engage with the world. And that was super powerful. And since then, I have noticed it in so many people that I'm around, right? I just, I notice it when, when it's that experience when you see someone who is effectively taking taking ownership of a hurt that is not theirs, right? They just feel rejected, and so they take ownership of it, and then they get sad. Oh, yeah. So days go by. That's not what I want to talk about today. It's just I want to set oh. the, the stage for rejection, with rejection-sensitive dysphoria for the thing that I, I feel like is related that came up. Like, another couple of days later, a podcast shows up in my feed. Do you ever listen to the Ezra Klein show? No, I don't know what that is. Ezra Klein is a journalist. He's on MSNBC. You know, he's a lib. Ah, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so, no, I, so I, I love uh, Ezra Klein. I think he's a smart guy. And, and he's yeah. one of those, uh, like another one of those journalists who has said, you know what, my show on, uh, you know, and now he's, he's on Vox actually now. And it's, and so um, he is. Like he, he said, my show is the stuff that I want to talk to people about that I never have time to talk for pe- to people about when I am uh, doing other stuff like other traditional media. So I just want to get guests on. I want to talk for a long time with them about things that are important to me. And this episode popped up a conversation with former U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy. 
Hmm. Uh, sharing stories of the communities that he visited as Surgeon General across mm-hmm. the United States, talking about issues like addiction and obesity and mental health. And the podcast ended up not being about any of that, right? It was about the number one subject that most people wanted to talk with him about as he visited their communities. Can you possibly guess what that subject is? No. Well, rejection? (laughs) It's actually pretty close. Oh, really? Oh, okay. It is loneliness. Oh, they want to talk to the Surgeon General about that. Wow. Well, get a load of this. This is fascinating. I I did, you know, I started searching, so I opened up the Goog, and I said, uh, I said, uh, loneliness is, right? Because I love the safe search response or the, the smart search responses. And these are the top five searches. For loneliness is. Loneliness is killing me. Loneliness is a serious public health problem. Loneliness is such a sad affair. I think that's a song. Uh, Loneliness is cleanliness. And I I don't know what that's all about. Loneliness is not a phase. Oof. Loneliness is behind you right now. (laughs) (laughs) Loneliness! (laughs) So I, I got to thinking about it. I said, what are the and how does loneliness impact me? Because it clearly impacts a lot of people. In fact, 55 million people, that's double the number of people who have diabetes in this country. That is more than the number of people who smoke in the United States. They say that they suffer from loneliness. Loneliness is vastly underreported because uh, reports suggest multiple Peer-reviewed studies suggest that people who uh, have uh, or are suffering from loneliness, if they see the word lonely or loneliness in a survey, they will not report it. They see it and they think, oh, God, well, that's not me. But in fact, that is. And so UCLA had to adapt an entirely new study called the UCLA Loneliness Scale, which is this validated scale to assess loneliness without using the word loneliness at all. Oh, wow. Right? And uh, it is all because people who are uh, living with loneliness, that equates to I'm not wor- I- I'm not worthy of being loved. Sure. And why would you want to admit that out loud? Right. It is crushing. And so I found myself like, oh, oh my God, I'm drowning in woe right now. Uh, and I realized, I wonder if that, I think that's it. I think that's, that really, it, it, some of the symptoms that I'm reading about describe uh, things that I have attributed to, um, you know, imposter syndrome, which we've talked about on this yep. show. And um, and I think I think the anxiety that I'm dealing with, like I am worried about being lonely and falling into the trough of loneliness as a result of some of the choices that I've made in my life and career that I think uh, that that I I am feeling right now at this stage now, uh, you know, that that I think I I could be struggling with. Yeah. Well, that's, so there's a lot of coulds and shoulds and woulds. And, sure. And I, I regret that. But I'm not surprised. But I would have thought that having a family, not a fa- like a uh, wife and children would help with a lot of that. I don't have either of those things. That's why I guess I was asking. I am really glad that you said that because it's it is an important uh, it's an important thing to note okay. that being surrounded by people who love you and care for you uh, it, it is in your family uh, is not a barrier to loneliness. And in fact, Murthy says in this podcast, which I thought was fascinating, he said some of my loneliest times 
uh, as Surgeon General, where when I was Surgeon General, like I'm surrounded by people who need me, who need my insights, who are looking to me for guidance. My family loves me and is proud of me, and yet I feel incredibly lonely. This is the lottery winner, winner syndrome, right? right? I won the lottery, and that was the, the that led to the loneliest stretch of consecutive years of my entire life. Right. That's that's the the lottery syndrome. Right. Nobody cares about me for me anymore. They care about the money. Uh, They care about the story. They care about this outside thing. And it it leads to uh, they they bought a big house. They bought a big house that is that has a big yard that where the the houses are separated from one another by this physical barrier of space. And now no one like there is no community anymore. There's no community anymore. I find that fascinating. And here I am as somebody who back in 2007 elected to to take my skills and, and you know, whatever I can contribute to the world and try to do it in a different way by by freelancing and starting this podcast business and doing all these things and realizing that uh, I I don't have physical contact with many people anymore. And that it turns out is leads to the biochemical sort of dimension of loneliness that when you don't have physical connection with people with a community it changes the way your hormones work i guess it's, that makes sense but i never would have thought of that so bef- before i get into the physiology of loneliness I, yeah. I i you know you as you said you don't have a the family you have foster who's awesome <laughs> yeah uh but I'm, I'm curious how do you feel about that how is your community does this does this strike a chord with you it definitely does and actually right now uh even more so than usual because uh two very dear friends two of the people that i was closest with out here and have been for a really long time um have just left uh, they are moving from Los Angeles to Minneapolis. It is a great step up for them, both professionally and personally. Their quality of life is skyrocketing because, you know, mm-hmm. a dollar here is, I guess, $19,000 in Minneapolis. <laughs> I don't know. They're just sort of getting all of Minneapolis in a box. And I, while I am so happy for them, it is, to be honest, a little devastating. It's something that I've been working with. It probably didn't help that they left a post-it on your door that just said, because of you. As they drove yeah, out of town, that was it? weird. <laughs> that was weird <laughs> that they said I asked for their forwarding address and they said elsewhere. And I was like, well, <laughs> seems a little vague. Um, but so that's something I mean, it's not like I'm losing them as friends and I'm definitely going to be visiting them. We already have vague plans for me to visit early next year. But that idea of things moving on to actually to zoom out a little bit, I have always had a fear of ending up alone in some sort of way mm-hmm. of doing something. I mean, a lot of that has to do with maybe my fear of conflict, um, that this fear of abandonment, for some reason, it's like another me was abandoned at one point in his life. And I don't remember ever being that person, but that is definitely that fear, uh, that fear of loneliness and doing everything that I can to try to counteract that, which gets harder and harder as people, as we do grow older and people do right. have families and kids and their lives sort of take on different directions. It can be a lot of work to try to stay current and connected with people. Well, connected with old friends and relationships is, is one. The, the other that I find I struggle with consistently is uh, building new connections. 
And I, yeah. I know we've talked a little bit about that on the show, but I think that this plays into it, right? Which is this idea that um, as a, you know, a 40-something man, uh, it is a challenge for me to have the time and space and, uh, and, and <laughs> who the hell am I kidding, charisma to go meet new people <laughs> that, right. that, you know, want to hang out with me. And, and that is a, that's a fascinating place to be because I've always, I, I, I never, like when I think of myself, my self-image is not one of, you know, being a guy who can't meet people. Um, you know, we talked about social anxiety and how I'm not great at parties. And, you know, she, I'm realizing that so many of these things kind of play into that. But also, I know how to speak to other adults. Like right. I can do that when I when I have to. I have made the conscious choice not to do that for so many years that I worry that it's become that, that it, it can habituate. And oh, that, that it actually is something atrophies that think, a little bit. Yeah, sure. That it atrophies. Sure, don't you think? I mean, that feels like that's sure. a that's kind of it's a natural muscle. outcome. It yeah. absolutely. And so, so that leads to this sort of the physiology of loneliness. Like, what happens when mm-hmm. you are lonely? Like, it, it turns out, as <laughs> you will will likely not surprise you at all. Uh, there is a very old reason for us to be uh, to experience loneliness. Right. Loneliness, it turns out it's it's that uh, that forced sort of biological reckoning in favor of community to keep us safer from saber tooth tigers. Right. I was about to say saber tooth tigers. It always comes down to saber tooth tigers. Always comes down to saber tooth tigers. Absolutely. Because, uh, you know, it's it's the thing. It's that thing that reminds us that we are unsafe. Our hormones, our adrenals, these help us to respond to threat and they are always they're on call when your body is under stress and when you become uh, you know lonely sort of chronically lonely uh it, it when you believe that your worth and and value is deflated uh in the very old days, right, when we were first discovering what it means to be a community, to emerge from the caves and and build our first, you know, small communities, villages, mm-hmm. et cetera. Like, we do that to keep us safer so that someone is going to take watch. Someone is going to help us with food. Someone is going to help reduce the stress of living alone. And so when you put yourself Aside from communities, you're increasing the stress of living alone. You don't sleep as well. Your hormones are constantly uh, pegging you to wake up and look for the cyber-tooth tiger outside your door. Uh, there, you're you're <laughs> constantly uh, at a state of alert. So it's not that you think, "Oh, I I'm I'm not sleeping well." You might think to yourself, "Oh, I sleep fine," but you're really not sleeping fine. You might sleep the same number of hours, but you're actually sleeping terribly. You have what they call mm. micro awakenings, right? Oh, and so I know about those. You, yeah. Right, right. So you wake up and then you go back to sleep. You wake up, you go back to sleep. That is not a restful state. So you get like a full eight hours and you still feel terrible. You still feel terrible. And you're disconnected. You're constantly in a state of fear. And finally, in our modern era, you ask yourself this question, maybe not literally, maybe not explicitly, but you're thinking at some level, why would you possibly want to connect with me? Because again, I am not worthy. That's the thing that I, when you said that it's physiological and the loneliness sort of pushes, do you think, are you saying that the loneliness then pushes you to be with other people? That was the, that's the intention. That's the intention because the problem is I feel like it, when you feel lonely and you, you, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, you go to that next thing of that I'm not worthy of it. It really can compound. It really can. And I, it really can get worse and worse. Yeah. I wonder if that biological, that physiological response 
you know, back when we were dealing with as early humans, homo sapiens, uh, you know, apes with clubs, Hmm. uh, if that experience of loneliness was one that was a reminder that we need to go be with the community. And today, there are so many distractions, cultural distractions, technological distractions, that that experience of loneliness is is one that just feeds on itself, right? It's a snake that eats its own tail uh, because we are our brains are just wired for other things to give us attention and not um to you know go get community like we don't think immediately i'm lonely i guess i better go hug someone we think i think i'm just going to go turn on twitter and see what the world is doing right. um, yeah and uh, so it they they term it so it's called social scarcity right that it it becomes hmm. harder and harder to ask for help to ask for sort of friendship it puts the focus inward right yes i can very i'm sorry to interrupt but i can very 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 much relate to that uh going back to away from loneliness but very connected to it anxiety the first thing one of the things that i've really learned over the last couple years is when i'm having very bad anxiety to absolutely reach out and it doesn't have to be hey steve (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Who are you? I don't have any friends named Steve. I guess I wouldn't say that, but I would say, uh, Steve, get out of my apartment. I would, uh, because the first thing that my anxiety tells me to is you're weird right now. So definitely don't reach out to anyone because you won't be yourself yes. and then they won't like you. And yep. that's why I like to put a face on my anxiety and call him a real jerk. Like that weirdo Steve. Steve. Instead, I've learned I don't need to call my friends and say, hey, I'm really anxious right now. I can say, what are you up to? Or anything. Just to get out mm-hmm. of my own head makes me feel that other people are the answer for me. And I've really finally learned that now that I'm 40, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and that that gets to, uh, you know, this idea that you, you know, you have the power to decrease social scarcity, right? You have the power, but it becomes almost emotionally impossible to do it when right. you're in a state of chronic loneliness. And this is different from solitude. They make a, a very clear distinction from the from solitude versus loneliness, right? Mm. Solitude being the state of being alone, which is not troublesome to the individual. That's right, introversion, that's like, right? That's that's, that's taking ha- ha- an introverted moment. That's hammock time. Yeah, hammock time. Right. right. It's yeah. okay. That's okay. Right. And, you know, speaking of the dangers of technology and social media and their relationship to loneliness, yes, there are some connections that that uh, you, you know you can find that that make social media dangerous. Yeah. And, and it, you know, according to Murthy. I really like his perspective, which is it it all comes down to intentionality, intentionality Mm. versus unintentionality or or sort of unconscious use of the tools. If you're using social media to plan a group, to organize a group online, to build relationships, to build meetups, to build a business, like all of those things are pro-socialization. Even if you're not physically with somebody at the time you're using them, it's it's pro-socialization. There's a reason to be doing it. Sure. And Ideally, hopefully, that leads to real physical connection as a result of your use of these tools versus long scrolling on a drunken Friday night. <laughs> Wait, doing what? Just long scrolling on a, on a drunken oh, Friday night. Like is that what you're that's just called? Long scrolling? I like that. Sure. You just go, you know, because it's the never ending feed. You just keep swiping. Sure. I feel like I'm teaching you terms today. This is really I really great. appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Because then yeah. that turns into an anxiety hammock. 
<laughs> See, now I'm teaching you terms. Who's the, who's the captain now? Oh, man. <laughs> you are, because we need a new product, the Anxiety Hammock, uh, in the What's That Smell Anxiety store. Oh, my goodness, we're going to get the team working on that right away. I don't know what it is, but I know it has a speaker in it, and it's reminding you that nobody is sitting with you in the hammock. How <laughs> oh, sad. It's just the sound of yeah. crickets. Crickets shushing <laughs> each other, because even they don't want to be a part of it. <laughs> yes. 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 That's a home run. That is a home run. <laughs> I feel like uh, this is one that hit me uh, pretty close to home. Yeah. Uh, and I just want to read this finally, uh, a final passage from uh, from the, the, the podcast. Loneliness isn't yeah. simply painful. It is lethal. Several meta studies have found mm. the mortality risk associated with loneliness is higher than that of obesity and equivalent to smoking. Fifth. Cigarettes a day. Oh. So Murphy, uh, in his time as Surgeon General, decided to label loneliness a public health epidemic. Really? That medical professionals do not throw around lightly. Oh, there you go. Man. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. So if you are not lonely, go hug someone who is. If you are lonely, accept it. And <laughs> This has made me rethink so many of the of the uh, opportunities that we have on this very show to talk about, you know, and I, I'm a big advocate of giving yourself permission to do something that is that feels good and feels right and feels true to you. You know, you don't want to go to the reunion, but you feel like you have to. You don't hmm. really have to. You could choose not to go to the reunion. But honestly, maybe you should ask yourself first if you need to go to the reunion. Maybe right. you need to give yourself a hug. Maybe you need to give yourself a hug that's weird that is not a thing you should do because that doesn't cure loneliness at all that's uh, just you're just like that's a straitjacket fantasy camp <laughs> if you're that's, hugging yeah, yourself that's, you're just lonely pretending. is that a loneliness debating is that a thing <laughs> it is now <laughs> This year in anxiety, Pete, going back into history is a terrible idea. And here's an example. <laughs> Growing up can be a confusing and very anxious time for kids. And as a result, parents are always on the lookout for ways to help calm their child's minds. And in the 19th century, the cure for anxious children came in the form of what was called soothing syrup. And like all things back in the olden days, the ingredients were horrifying. For instance, the very popular Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup for children had 65 grams of aspirin in it. Wait, did I say aspirin? I meant pure morphine. Uh, Mrs. Winslow's was a huge hit for a zillion years. Finally, it went off the shelves because in 1910, the New York Times ran an article exposing this death molasses and a bunch of others like it for containing, as I said, morphine, codeine, heroin, and chloroform. So, you know what's the worst? The past. <laughs> Here's something that might improve your day. It doesn't contain morphine at all. Oh. It, it, it's audible.com. Audible is a fantastic uh, sponsor of this show, and they are going to give you a free book. And, you know, I've been talking about loneliness, and it, it yeah. makes me reflect. It makes me think about some old relationships I've had with old instructors and teachers in my life. And I realized, oh. you know, if you haven't experienced this uh, tiny bite-sized uh, little read, you should probably pick up Tuesdays with Maury 
by Mitch album. Oh, it's like a yeah, what three is this hour. Book? I've heard of this what? book. Yeah, you know, it's a great little book. It's a, it's just a little kind of inspirational uh, experience where Mitch. It's a story of Mitch album, and he has this this chance to discover, to rediscover uh, a, a college professor and how he sort of uses his time with this older man. Oh, that's Maury. Who, who knows old... he's dying? Yeah, Maury. Uh, what was Maury? Schwartz, I think this is yeah, Maury Schwartz, hmm. and uh, and and so he he gets to visit uh, every Tuesday, and they get to to kind of share and rekindle this relationship, and uh, uh, they're all sort of lessons on on how to live as the, from the perspective of this guy who is dying, and was and and I think loneliness plays a big part of that. Like, how do these people kind of heal one another hmm. through their kind of end of life experience? So Tuesdays with Maury by Mitch Album. It is available in Audible. It's only three hours and 42 minutes, but you're getting it for free, so you don't have to do our usual per-minute calculation, value calculation. So you can take a look at that, or you can take a look at any of the 180-some-odd thousand books that are available to you. You can also get a hold of the new Audible Originals, which are custom, wonderful, like bespoke to Audible Hmm. uh, uh, productions that are terrific. Uh, Audible is an incredible value. Again, I've been a member for, nay, almost... Have I, it's been 20 years. Nay. It's, if it's not, it should be. Nay, 20 years. It's nay. been a long time. Yep. Hundreds and hundreds of books. Every one of them is terrific. So audibletrial.com slash scent of a podcast. What you do when you sign up there for a new account, you get the free account. You get to search for the free book, Tuesdays with Maury. I don't care. You can do another book. But you also are directly supporting this show when you do that. If you always wondered, hey, how could I support this show? Yeah. Audibletrial.com slash scent of a podcast. Going up, Pete, I'm very excited about this next part of the show because I have another listener submission. Oh, outstanding. All right. Here is what he wrote. Dearest WTS, I live in New York City, which means that in the course of a normal day, I spend a fair amount of time in elevators. Leaving my house, I take an elevator down nine floors. Arriving to work, take the elevator up ten floors. When I go to the doctor's office or pick up my kid from preschool, elevators are always involved. Which makes the anxiety I'm writing about such an issue. For you see, nearly every time I step out of an elevator, I have a brief but palpable flash of fear that as I cross the threshold, the elevator is going to shoot up or down violently, ripping me in two in the process. Oh, Oh, God. My anxiety has a very particular point of origin. In 2011, a woman named Suzanne Hart was killed getting on an elevator in Midtown Manhattan. A story in the New York Times about the accident describes her getting on an elevator when the elevator suddenly lurched up, its door still open, according to the fire department. It dragged her until she was pinned between the elevator and the wall between the first and second floors. I was living in New York at the time, and I can tell you that the sad fate of Miss Hart was talked about for months. The freak accident of her death sent a chill through the elevator-based community, and I'm sure I'm not the only one for whom the effects have been far-reaching. My anxiety doesn't change my behavior. It's not like I've only started taking the stairs, and I forget about it immediately. As soon as I'm safely off the elevator, per in, and yes, I weirdly only worry about death by elevator when exiting, I move on with my day. 
<laughs> but this little fear is always there, waiting, biding its time for me to step off my floor. And then it suddenly reappears in a flash of anxiety. You're maybe about to die, it yells, <laughs> before disappearing back into the subconscious corner of my mind where it lives. Am I alone in my elevator phobia? Yours, Scott H.F. <laughs> Lamb. Okay, Scott, Mr. Lamb, thank you so much for submitting. I appreciate it. Pete, fear of elevators. It does not have a specific term, but it's clearly an anxiety shared by many. And one thing I wanted to point out is that fleeting nature of the fear, how it just sort of like flashes and is gone. That brings me back to our very first episode when I talked about my fear of tail strikes in planes, that it's it doesn't keep yeah. me from getting on planes. And I don't think about it. I forget about it all the time until just that first incline. And then I tense up just for a second and then I'm fine. Now, I wanted to check in with you. How are you with elevators? Oh, God, I'm hyperventilating over oh, here. No! This is so, t- it's so funny. I feel like you just rekindled one that, that's oh, no. 30 <laughs> that's years the, old. What's that smell promise? <laughs> God. So story. I yeah. went to I did the first couple of years of my uh, higher education back east and spent a lot of time uh, in New York City, in fact, uh, and rode a lot of elevators. And I I think I don't I don't actually remember what the trigger was that made me uh, experience this. But I, too, felt that deep seated elevators are killers sensation i think it's because there there you know there are a number this is a, like a regular movie trope like a horror movie trope like you get people on right. elevators and the elevators crush them rip arms off things like that which mm. I, I don't think can actually happen but now mm. it, apparently they can uh and so i would do this like i i was singing with another uh, uh, acapella group and we would go we would perform at parties and things so we'd have to ride elevators up to to these you know, party floors to apartments, whatever. And I would do this thing where I would, there'd be seven of us and the elevator doors would open and people would start getting out and I would jump across the threshold. Not a a big jump, but I would (laughs) just always jump. Yeah. And so I was doing this, I did this for about a year. And it was, sometimes it was like super subtle where it would just be like a little hop skip kind of a thing. And sometimes it it would be more obnoxious. Like it was like two feet, like firmly jumping <laughs> across the threshold. Right. Because thought, well, of course, I have to jump because if that will decrease the time in sure. flight across the, the <laughs> transom of the elevator. And yeah. one day, uh, one of our, uh, uh, one of my uh, colleagues in the group who is now a, a distinguished uh, professor at the Berkeley College of Music in Boston. Oh. He looks at me and he says, um, what are you doing jumping over elevators like that? I said, well, I kind of, I don't like the idea of them moving when I'm in, when I'm crossing it. He says, God, you look like a real asshole. <laughs> <laughs> That's his official opinion. <laughs> yeah, that was it. And and I, I stopped, like I began like oh. deep work to, to fix this in myself then. And I haven't thought about it since. And so all of that came just flooding all back as you're reading that back. email. Yes. <laughs> and now I need to go take stairs, like officially, oh, like all the time. <laughs> I'm well sorry done. and you're welcome. <laughs> That's what this podcast should be called. We're sorry yeah. and you're welcome. <laughs> I was hoping that whenever you were in an elevator with your acapella group, that when the doors open, you would throw one of them first and yell, take him. (laughs) That would be one way to do it. Lay down your body. (laughs) Yes. Your fear of that is you are not alone. If you look up elevator anxiety, the I actually I think I heard my Google like moan. 
because it was so much. It was just like, oh, there's so much to give you. And of course, it doesn't have to just involve being crushed by an elevator. This is a famous story that maybe you have forgotten about. In April of 2008, 34-year-old New York production manager Nicholas White went out for a smoke break while working late on a Friday night. Taking the elevator back up to his office on the 39th floor, the elevator stopped suddenly. And White was trapped for the next 41 hours, <gasps> subsisting only oh. on a pack of Rolaids and by urinating down the elevator shaft. And there's a oh, time-lapse God. video of all 41 hours available on the Internet. <laughs> I wouldn't watch it. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> he made it out fine. I mean, the rest of his life isn't great, but he made it out fine of the elevator. But yes, that's another thing. The idea of just sort of an elevator stopping. It turned out that it was late on a Friday night. They had stopped all of the elevators for maintenance. And there's and split didn't screen. know he was in there? No idea that he was in there. He was yelling for help. There's split screen with the video that I mentioned of elevator workers in other elevators working on things. <gasps> they say they never heard and no one was watching the security video. So he was there for all 41 hours. Gross! All right. Oh, so dear. this so far, not great, right? So I wanted to look up a little bit of elevator safety. So I went to the source. In 1852, Alicia Graves Otis introduced the first safety device for elevators. You've been on an elevator. I'm sure you've seen the word Otis all over. Absolutely. Right? Otis yes. established a company for manufacturing elevators and went on to dominate the elevator industry. Uh, fun elevator fact. The Otis Elevator Company carries the equivalent of the world's population in their elevators every five days. So clearly, if anyone knows what they're talking about, it's Otis, right? One would think. One would think. So I went to their website to look for safety tips, and there are safety tips. And I was not disappointed because, can I just read you a couple of the tips at random? Oh, God. So if you're nervous, this is what to know about elevators. Number one, (laughs) know your destination. Push the elevator call button once for the direction you want to go. Great tip. Wait, that's a safety tip? Yep. Pay attention to the floor indicators and be prepared to exit at your destination. Great (laughs) tip. Uh, (laughs) Here's another one. Enter and exit carefully. Passengers nearest the doors should move first. Dynamite tip. That's it. (laughs) These apparently were written by people... Like, who don't know how seatbelts work <laughs> on airplanes. Oh, my goodness. Like, this is just, yeah, those were some of the great tips. Um, And, oh, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm a little scattered, but I got went into a deep dive about elevators. I'm not going to read you most of the stuff, but can I share one more elevator fun fact? <laughs> yeah. That you might not. You might not know about this. This isn't this isn't anxiety producing, or maybe it is. We'll see. Uh, you know, closed door buttons in most elevators. Yes, are they bogus? Hundred percent since since the nineteen nineties. <sighs> yes, they have been obsolete since the nineteen nineties. But because we crave a sense of agency in our everyday lives, the elevator makers just keep installing them. They do not affect anything. The elevator is on its own schedule, and that just gives you something to push. I found a Harvard psychologist named Ellen Langer. She says, "Quote: Perceived control is very important. It diminishes." stress and promotes well-being so press away i guess oh (laughs) it's doing nothing that's diabolical that is the elevator industrial complex that i knew existed i know big elevator oh the worst (laughs) Uh, okay so this was all upsetting and then i told you about the the one part of control that you have is a button that does nothing but i have some good news are you ready to turn it around if you can for real yes 
Elevators are responsible for only about 27 deaths a year in the United States and approximately 9,000 injuries, according to the Center for Construction Research and Training. And do you want to guess who the majority of these injuries happen to? Uh, Small children and the elderly. No, see, that would be sad. Instead, the vast majority (laughs) is maintenance workers installing or repairing elevators or working near an elevator shaft. Those guys are most of the 27. Okay, now wait a minute, because this is suddenly not like if I know that as a um, as a relationship of total people involved with escalate or elevators, passengers and maintenance workers, 27 seems like a small number. But how many Mm -hmm. once you get rid of passengers, how many like what does that look like? Because I'm thinking that maybe elevator maintenance worker is not a great career choice. Well, depending on <laughs> the percentage of people who end up dying as a result of coming huh. in contact with the I didn't the tools. do the math that way. That is interesting. I don't know how many elevator workers there are, so I can't help you with that. <laughs> so anyone who's listening who is also an elevator repairman, we are also sponsored by ZipRecruiter. Um <laughs> Find another job because your job is made of murder. Um, Don't work on murder boxes instead. I did do math the other way, though. For passengers, according to Consumer Watch, it's only about five deaths per year. And that's out of 18 billion elevator trips. So that's pretty good odds. Five wow. per 18 billion elevator trips. Um, uh, Abigail Kunitz, uh, the New York's building department spokesperson, has said elevators are the safest form of travel in New York due to the city's stringent inspection and safety requirements. I did a little bit of research. You remember the sad tale of Suzanne Hart. That building's elevators had actually gotten flagged a number of times for safety violations, and the building was very, very old. So again, the possibility of that happening is really like winning eight lotteries, the crappiest lottery you can ever win. I don't know why I picked lotteries to do the thing. So again, five deaths out of 18 billion elevator trips, you are more likely to be killed by a bear and 10 times more likely to drown in your tub than to be hurt or killed in an elevator. So so I actually just, it turns out the Bureau of Labor Statistics actually yeah. has this number completely published. And we have 27,000 uh, elevator installers and oh. repairers at work in this country. And that means of your 27 that's one who are thousand. dead, that's like 0.001%, right? Like oh, that's, that's good. Very small. So okay, good. It's All okay. right. So yes, it's more likely, as I said, to be killed by a bear or to drown in your tub. So take heart and take heed, WTS listeners. Just if you want to stay safe, never take a bathroom. You're in an elevator. And if the door's open and there's a bear in there, take the stairs. Thank you all so much for joining us for this episode. Today's tune is Howling at the Moon by Tomer Katz featuring Viggs. What? All right. (laughs) Coming up next week. The toilet. Definitely the toilet. (laughs) No, it's not the toilet. Look, the answer will never be the toilet. Well, it sounds like somebody was traveling with uh, a bird of prey and they needed to get out. If I don't order room service, how can I look like a Hollywood after party with the Wilson brothers? Like, I just don't know. (laughs) Until then, I'm Tommy Metz III. 
And I'm Pete Wright. Thank you for downloading. We'll be back next week on What's That Smell? My kids do that. They come in and they actually really? lie sideways. They lean their face right, face first, right in my sound panels. Do they really? They like the feel. Yes. I it's like sensory do stimulus. That too. That's funny. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And I saw a building in New York that I wanted to lick because it was, it was like candy colored. And there are certain types of blue and purple that if it's a jewel or a rock or a building, some part of me really wants to give it a little lick. I don't, but. Do you know what's great about that? What? Is that we've already pushed record. And I think <laughs> that that may be the most precious and delightful thing you've ever said to me when you didn't think we were recording a show. So, thanks. And I want to lick buildings. <laughs> All right. <clears throat>